This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome to The Napoleonicist. I've got another great interview lined up for you all as Napoleon Month continues. I'm joined by Professor Beatrice de Graaf from the University of Utrecht, author of Fighting Terror After Napoleon, How Europe Became Secure After 1815. We've had discussions about Napoleon's life, but considering that this period is called the Napoleonic Wars, it seemed appropriate to not only look at how Napoleon waged war, but also how he sought to secure peace. Beatrice, welcome back to the Napoleon Assist. How have you been doing? Well, suffering a little bit from the lockdown, but then history is our biggest escape. So I'm uh, tremendously honoured to be back here again, uh, Zach. I want to start with a question that I'm putting to all of my guests, just to kind of set the playing field in terms of people's interpretations. What's your overarching view on Napoleon as an individual? Yes, I've been listening to your podcast and uh, I've noticed that you post them to everyone. Um, I'm just wondering whether you yourself uh, uh, have made up your mind yet. Um, that said, uh, I can give you my answer. I was listening to your latest podcast uh, with Luke Daly Groves and Marcus Cripps. And uh, I must say that I side more with Cripps than with uh, Luke Daly Groves. Um, the interesting, so more negatively, uh, the interesting thing is, is that that position uh, I can explicate it a little bit in a minute, round, runs counter to the general tendency in the Netherlands as such. I have a very good friend, Professor Lotte Jensen, a professor of cultural history, and she just brought out a wonderful book in, in Dutch on Napoleon's legacy. And she ran a brief online inquiry in the Netherlands on how people felt about Napoleon. So pretty much your question. And... Um, it was, was an overwhelming number of more than 70% of the hundreds of people that responded who had a positive impression of Napoleon, not just as a great general, also as a statesman and as having had a positive impression on Dutch history. And that's also how I have been brought up. Napoleon is the one who introduced it, the street names, the addresses, uh, uh, the national administrative agencies, uh, the conscription, um, uh, taxes, uh, so everything that not it's not that that considered positive in the Netherlands to be honest but in brief Napoleon is considered a great statesman but for me uh, having studied the period itself um the, the last the last um years of the Napoleonic warfare I, I can only cite with Marcus Cripps that it's such a tremendous amount of destructive energy that Napoleon unleashed and it's it's unbelievable that people still think that he is a great statesman. He, he might have been a good general. I do agree with that. But with Napoleon, it's he was just a condottiere, a sort of kind of 16th century captain or general who could not understand uh, peace as such. He, he, he saw himself as a conqueror. He saw himself as a fighter. Uh, he, he was a general, but he was not. He didn't have a real principle. I think Paul Schroeder, 
also mentioned this about him, uh, the, the, the great scholar of international relations. And uh, for Schroeder, Na Napoleon is, is a, a, the most damning individual in, in world politics in that, that period. And according to Schroeder, it's his words, Napoleon is nasty, evil, self-righteous, <laughs> and he has a hatred of everything. I, I'm not sure whether I would compound to subscribe to that. But, but as a historian from the international relations, you can see how Schroeder, Schroeder comes to this um, estimate, because Napoleon's bid for the mastery of Europe was, was disastrous. Whole generations uh, were burned in, in the wake of this uh, ambition, which is not a principle, but a, a lust for, for dominance. Marx is going to be absolutely delighted by the fact that an esteemed professor has endorsed his opinion. I can almost hear him cheering listening to this now. Um, <laughs> as for my part, I mean, I, I've deliberately taken a step back after having had my say right at the start of Napoleon Month, where I kind of outlined that for me, the issue has always been much more about the extent to which people will worship the man in a, a cult-like setting. Um, and for me, I've always had apart from a very vague sense of kind of Napoleon did great things, when I, I approached this period through the Peninsular War and having seen the scale of the atrocities that were committed, um, the, the whole stabbing uh, of his ally in the back, the scale of destruction that was wrought on the Iberian Peninsula, it's very difficult for me to kind of come back from that. And although my view has mellowed slightly and I'm not as harsh of a critic of Napoleon as I was initially, where I was really quite cutting and scathing about the man, now I'm much more inclined to kind of recognise the scale of his achievement, the positives that in some cases were brought about by his role, um, the the code particularly for all that I have significant issues with things like slavery, the um, horrendous step backwards that women experienced under the implementation of the code compared to what they had during the revolution. As a whole, I think something like the code was what France needed and my assessment would be that at that specific moment in 1799, he was probably the leader that France needed, but wasn't necessarily the leader that Europe as a whole needed uh, to be on, on the throne of France. Yes, and, and the point here in Napoleon is, is, is the question, could he have stopped? Could he have let it rest there? Um, Martin White once wrote that, that Napoleon didn't have a principle. And uh, coming again, coming from the international relations, so I know everything about the Code Napoleon, that it's considered so positive. Also in the Netherlands, it's Lod uh, Lodewijk Napoleon, Louis Napoleon, his brother, who implemented a, a specific Dutch uh, variegation of that code here, which is also considered the beginning of modern Dutch law. So there are definitely assets, but from the perspective of the history of the international relations, you could argue, and I, I concur with that, that Napoleon uh, had no principle in in the sense that he had that he did not have a specific geopolitical realistic ambition uh, britain had the defense of the seas and her empire russia had constantinople austria had holding the ring in germany keeping ahead of prussia prussia had supremacy in North germany uh, but napoleon pointed to everything and to nothing nothing could really satisfy him because he had no aims to satisfy and um, nothing could satisfy the principles he stood for because he didn't really stand for anything. He was just this, as I said before, this condottiera. He was just waging waging war. And this makes it very, very difficult for me to value his position in the domestic realm as detached from his um, yeah, the breaking havoc that he did in the international realm. And I think that's lost in oblivion a little bit too much. Yeah, I definitely agree. This has always been my my issue with Napoleon was that he inherently upset the whole notions of balance of power. And as a result of that, it be it becomes very difficult for me to kind of reconcile that with this idea that other European nations were just going to accept Napoleon as having hegemony over the vast majority of Europe and were prepared to acquiesce when he started to dictate economic um, economic policy effectively of the entire continent as he did with the continental system. So I, I've never really been a subscriber to this idea that Napoleon was sort of the innocent um, party when it came to nations declaring war on him. Yes, the coalitions consistently formed against him, but you have to ask why that was the case. And ultimately for me, it's a question of Napoleon having too much influence the, to the point where there was insufficient compromise to allow other great power nations across Europe to be satisfied with the pieces that he dictated.
Yes, exactly. I, I think we'll touch upon that that issue in, in, in a minute. Perhaps it's it's good to um, bring one other element into the equation. The, the, the question is, why could Napoleon rake so much havoc on Europe? Why did the international system allow for someone to Napoleon to arise? So I totally agree with you. He was not uh, an... Uh, um, he was he was not a passive object of the other uh, the other powers. He he was very proactively. He was starting the campaigns. He he didn't even declare war. He just invaded. So he's very much an agent. Yet he also is a product of his times. And if you consider the international system of states of the 18th century, uh, I think that system was pretty much pretty much uh, bankrupt. It was uh, again in in the words of of Schroeder, it was uh, totally. Um, unchecked so power had had, had grown totally unchecked uh, uh war was completely logical to all the cabinets of europe um it was complete uncertainty as to the adversary's intentions uh, great caprice uh, was was nested within uh the, the international system of of, of power uh, the element of surprise was considered a very positive thing you should invade when you could so and these are the things that this is the era in which napoleon came to power, which he grew up. War as an instrument of policy was completely accepted. And uh, the French and the Ottoman Empire fell into decline. Um, uh, Polish-Lithuania had the life squeezed out of it. So Prussia and Russia, the Habsburg monarchy, uh, they were all considering war as, as logical. So in this era, it's only understandable that Napoleon thinks that he can step into that vacuum and upend the balance of power to its own uh, benefits. So he's pretty much a child of the late 18th century. So in that extent, he's pro probably um, uh, he is probably also an um, an object of history rather than an agent. Absolutely, and this is why I tend to go after those who put Napoleon on a pedestal and try to kind of exalt him as something different from the era within which he operated, because ultimately. His actions weren't vastly different from what Britain or Russia or Austria were inclined to do when it came to diplomacy. And yet somehow he's meant to simultaneously be a product of that time. And I would agree with you, he is a product of that time. What he's doing is not significantly different, but at the same time, he's meant to be better than the other nations. And it's a dichotomy that I'm, I'm never able to reconcile. He's meant to be better. And yet, uh, he, he did, that, that's also something that I struggle with. And I haven't uh, done very much research into the Napoleonic uh, files myself, but I have uh, read and studied some of the material that uh, is found in the Dutch Royal Archives. And it's, it's, that's fascinating, amazing material. And it's the correspondence that Napoleon uh, uh, carried out with the Dutch as uh, uh, William VI, the Stadtholder, well, he was not pronounced William VI, he was in exile in England, uh, but he was trying, but before that, he was trying to get a stronghold back uh, on the continent, because for the, the House of Orange, it was not so much the, the, the territory of the Netherlands, it was their maison, their dynasty. And what you see is that Napoleon is a child of the 18th wages, these wars, but also knows that you have to somehow satisfy the dynasties that you topple. So, William I, later William I, who's then nothing, he's just William, the son of the last stadtholder that fled to England in 1795. And the Netherlands is a, um, a republic, and then uh, in the end it's incorporated in France as such. But before that, William asked Napoleon whether he can have some land for his maison, his house, and Napoleon gives it to him. But then in 1806, the, the, the William sides with the Prussians, and uh, well, he, they lost, they lose, and then and, uh, William asked Napoleon whether he can still have something to reside for he, uh, himself and his family. And then Napoleon shows himself completely ruthless and, and rude and crude and just writes to his monarch that there's no place for him anymore, that if he can't have, uh, uh, that, that if he loses, uh, he should just abandon all his rights. And if he can't be a master of his own uh, fate, uh, how can he, Napoleon, help this Dutch, uh, this Dutch royal prince? So uh, you can see here who Napoleon sort of burns this whole hereditary legacy of a very 
uh, strong household in Europe, the Orangists, not a big household, it's still name. And Napoleon is in this, this respect not very much 18th century. He's very much revolutionary uh, uh, with the idea that, that there's no entitlement for the monarchs of Europe. So on the one hand, he, he still tries a little bit to uh, accommodate them and to give them some land and to uh, even conclude treaties with them. But then on the other hand, he's completely unpredictable and just wipes away uh, countries and nations and dynasties and this comes back to haunt him in this he he goes too far there's no solidity there's no permanence to his system let's talk about how the system should have worked and how napoleon interacts with that because your research looks at state security diplomacy um and napoleon was quite unique in many respects but before we can kind of understand as you're saying how he upsets a number of these systems. It, it's kind of helpful, I think, for listeners to understand how things did work before under the Ancien Regime, because the world was obviously very different. Um, but on the surface, at least, it doesn't seem that states were particularly secure. So how does state security and diplomatic negotiations work during this period? Well, the, the, the international system of the 18th century was still very much a dynastic system the international system. Um, it, it, some people have described it as a witch's brew, um, which could explode uh, any time and in any direction. It meant that the Anglo-Dutch wars, the Anglo-French wars, uh, wars with Russia, uh, they were always on the brink, on the verge of happening. And there were no real, real possibilities for resolution of major international differences. There were no big conferences. If you look back before the Conference of Vienna in 1815, um, there's perhaps one or two other big conferences in Europe. So only a handful since 1648, since the conference of um, Münster. And so there is no conflict management resolution system in place. Uh, Kant writes about it, the eternal peace. So that's an idea that uh, uh, emerges in the late 18th century, but Friedrich von Gens, who is a scholar of Immanuel Kant, already writes in the early uh, 19th century, before 1806, and Gens writes his thesis, his PhD thesis, and says, well, Kant may be right, and my, 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 my mentor may be right in um, invoking this idea of an international system for world peace, but you can't have such a system without a sanctioning system as well. So without uh, one or two powers who stand guard, who are guaranteeing this system. So you can have collective security, but only if the major powers subscribe to a system where this idea of peace is upheld in peacetime. And that is something that only comes into place after 1815, but you can see that it's already in the air in the 18th century as an idea, but it's not put into practice at all. So war is unpredictable. It's the cabinet war, uh, uh, which, which can erupt at any time. There are treaties, but these treaties, they're not, they're not long lasting. So that's the problem of the 18th century, I think. And that's why uh, the rise of Napoleon is, is, is a product of this time. So how does the revolution and particularly Napoleon's leadership kind of interact with all of that? Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, again, that's, that's also a very difficult question because for some people coming from, for example, economic or, or um, hardcore military history, the argument is that the, the French revolutionary and the Napoleonic wars were not that revolutionary at all. Uh, the big changes only took place for the economic historians later on in the 19th century. If you consider the way war was waged, for example, weapon systems that were used, they were not that new. So the question is, to what extent was Napoleon then really a revolutionizing uh, element in this, in this whole system? It was not, um, not, not, I don't think that it's really the military uh, uh, system as such, um, because the, the communications industry, uh, reconnaissance, it still remained pretty much the same as it was transportation as during the military campaigns uh, of the 18th century, the way of moving your guns to the battlefields, uh, cavalry's pursuit, destruction, it was all pretty much the same militarily speaking, and also economically speaking. Uh, the wars were not that revolutionary either. They did not change much to the larger undercurrents of, of 
for example, the Industrial Revolution that only came later. Yet, however, I do think that there is something tremendously revolutionary about Napoleon, and that's not Napoleon, but that's the way he scared all the surrounding countries of Europe into a number of coalitions culminating in the sixth and seventh coalition and then culminating in which i think is a very revolutionary treaty it's the 25th march 1815 treaty of collective security mutual security this treaty is pretty much um disappeared in a uh, lost in oblivion but this this treaty is almost a kind of a proto-NATO-like alliance treaty with an Article 5 of mutual uh, assistance in times of war. And this treaty also lays out that after Napoleon will be defeated, the countries of Europe will stick together to preserve peace also in the years after the war. So it's not just a treaty for a sortie de guerre or for um, criteria for uh, post-war negotiations it's 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 a new system of collective security for peacetime and that is something that napoleon clearly did not intend to to produce but he did produce it nevertheless he is he's said to have been uh, uh, said and uh, he's quoted by de las casas the memoirs after his defeat at the battle of leipzig in october 1830 and napoleon is said to have said i'm tired of this old europe I refuse to rule over a withered empire. And the quote continues, but at first, this part of the quote underlines how Napoleon considered the international system as a dead and old a decayed system of 18th century uh, uh, cabinet warfare and withering dynasties. But what he hadn't understand is that he himself had brought into being this totally new idea of international collective security. And then the quote continues, what sort of peace has England concluded? Lord Castlereagh had the whole continent at his disposal, and yet what advantage, what indemnity has he secured to his own country? He has signed just such a peace as he would have signed had he been conquered. So for Napoleon, peace is about conquest, about oppression, occupation of your enemies. And what he didn't see is that for the countries in Europe, the way Napoleon waged war, uh, limitless, without any limit to his ambition, brought about this whole new idea that, that war should be fought as a continuation of political means and strategical aims and not just as a, a, a goal in itself. So with 1813, 1814 came a new idea into international politics, the idea of collective security. And in fact, there's even a treaty concluded on the 25th of March, 1815, after Napoleon's return. And this treaty is called Mutual Security. And uh, you could consider it a kind of a, almost a proto-NATO alliance treaty in the sense that the powers of Europe pledged uh, each other mutual support in the case, in the education of a war. And not just in the occasion of a war, and not just for the defeat of Napoleon, but also to preserve, to restore and to preserve the peace afterwards. So it's the, the pivot towards a system for collective security in peacetime. And that's the real revolutionary aspect of these years, 1813, 1815, and are produced by Napoleon, but not willed by Napoleon. So is this a case of Napoleon having a different perspective as a soldier diplomat rather than a civilian diplomat, which was perhaps more of the norm during this period? Um, yes, I, I think uh, that's spot on. Napoleon was a soldier diplomat. He was moved by military uh, principles and considerations, uh, securing a stronghold, paving the ways for further expansion. So diplomacy was just a type of warfare for him by other means, preparation for the next step. As I said, he didn't have a larger overarching geopolitical principle uh, only ex except for the dominance of, of Europe or the world. There was no idea of saturation to Napoleon. And that is also, I think, why uh, many of his treaties are perhaps on the first glance considered a success. We could talk about Tilsit, for example, 1807, a demonstration of power and glory. But it was, it was kind of... Um, tainted or flawed from the political point of view. So it was a diplomatic success for the military soldier that he was, but it was not a sustainable success for the future of geopolitical stability, if he ever wanted that. 
see, it's interesting that you mentioned Tilsit because it occurs to me as one of those instances where Napoleon thinks he's done incredibly well as a diplomat. Um, famously believes that he had this, he charmed the Russian Tsar, that they had this brilliant working relationship. There are all kinds of paintings with them being very cozy with one another. But then we have other instances where he was, he appeared to quite obviously be a diplomatic disaster um, and could go off on sort of impassioned rants at diplomats. Do you think that's a case of Napoleon adapting to specific circumstances? Or do you think that Tilsit was perhaps an aberration and the, the, more, um, the more blunt side that we see in some of the negotiations is more representative of the man? Well, as I said, I, I do think that for Napoleon, um, diplomacy was continuation of warfare by other means. And uh, waging war is in fact superimposing your dominancy over others. So he was, as a diplomat, underneath everything, he was a bully. And uh, he tried to bully his, his enemies and his friends and his allies into complete subjection to his ambitions. And in 1807, he was riding high. He had concluded a series of brilliant victories from Austerlitz to Jena and Friedland. He had defeated the armies of Austria, Prussia and Russia. He pulverized the Russians at Friedland. So he was, he was on a high state and the Russian army was in no state to continue fighting. So Tsar Alexander had to suggest these peace talks and had to acquiesce and submit himself to Napoleon, as did King Frederick William of Prussia. And Napoleon went there and he, he didn't have to do so much diplomacy. He was already, already the victor. And um, well, this, this, this great symbolicism of the 1807 treaty, the conference was held on a raft in a, a grand white tent in the main tent with a large green letter N on it facing the French side and an A on the Russian side. No tent for the Prussians and no um, uh, letter for the, for the Prussians either. So for Napoleon, this was all about um, pomp and circumstance. It was dominating, it was performing his glory. But uh, other people were far more wary, and his main diplomat was Jean-Marie de Talleyrand. And Talleyrand sensed that Tilsit was perhaps not such a great uh, asset for Napoleon. Um, the treaties of Tilsit meant that the Fourth Coalition was over, Napoleon controlled an empire across Europe, and uh, he concluded this treaty with Russia of going after Britain, the two of them. But Talleyrand sensed that things would not go well, and uh, he felt that Napoleon had handed far too heavy treatment to Austria and to Prussia. And in fact, it was true because in the next months and, and two or three years, uh, the way the continental system, the continental blockade affected Prussia and Russia meant that for Russia, this was not a sustainable system. And from almost from, from, from the moment on that the treaty was concluded, Prussia and but also Russia uh, were looking for ways to circumvent the treaty. So in that sense, it was not a stable treaty. It did not spell uh, spell out the peace. In fact, it prepared for the next war. It's exactly what I said. One aspect of state security that I'm particularly interested in your thought. Well, I'm interested in all of your thoughts, but I'm particularly interested in your thoughts um, about fortresses, because there was a phenomenon during the Ancien Regime of the construction of fortresses. We have that famous um, kind of fortress belt in northern France. And Napoleon represented a break from the usual philosophy on sieges during this period, or at least from the period that precedes him, in that he insisted that his commanders withstand at least one assault of a fortress after a breach had been knocked before they could surrender. Whereas before this point, governors could surrender upon the point of a breach being made in a perimeter wall. Do you feel that that had any kind of impact in terms of a change of emphasis? Well, I think for, for the fortresses, uh, the, the fortresses are a completely under-researched and under-considered uh, aspect of the Napoleonic Wars and also of the collective security uh, situation that arose after 1815. Um, the point is that the fortresses on the one hand were kind of outdated because the velocity, the, the rapid movements of the troops that Napoleon was able to mount in the field meant that you could just surpass the fortresses. Uh, and also uh, the, the, the idea of the artillery was already quite heavy. So it's already quite easy to demolish the smaller forts. At the same time, uh, Wellington, the Duke of Wellington, he sometimes considered 
as, as being quite um, old-fashioned and outdated in in the value that he attached and the significance that he attached to the matter of fortifications but he did attach a great importance to fortifications and there was a reason for this and this reason is also connected to this notion not perhaps to the the technical aspects of military warfare so fortresses were outdated already from a military point of view that's true yet fortresses were um an, an, a factor of calculation in a system of collective security because fortresses can hold an enemy up they can detain an enemy and can try to lure him for a siege for a longer period of days or even weeks uh, and it's also fortresses can also be seen or used as conduits for reconnaissance and intelligence so for, so for example this whole uh, barrier fortresses that was stretching from um, uh, Oostende from the North Sea via Oudenaarde uh, up until Mainz in Germany and then you could even consider the, the, the line of fortresses going southwards to the Mediterranean. This was a belt of conveyance of intelligence of communication between the troops of the coalition. It was also a belt of conveyance for um, uh, the, the infantry that could rest there and, and, and sit a battle out there. Uh, so the fortresses were more than just an element in a direct battlefield or a direct uh, war campaign. It was also a kind of, um, again, a mutual guarantee for the countries of Europe, the countries of the coalition between each other. And uh, Wellington in 1815 was made commander in chief of the occupation army, chairman of the military committee. He was also in charge of the so-called fortress fund. So almost half or even more of the money that came from the French occupation went into the fortresses. And uh, that meant that the, the huge efforts were made to construct this military barrier, which was also very much a political barrier, a barrier of collective security. And I think that that is an element that Napoleon did not conceive at all. For him, it was just another obstacle or another barrier, but it was not a political factor in waging war. And it was for the, for the Allies, it was for Wellington very much. In fact, that's why the fortresses were called the Wellington Barrier afterwards. Not by Wellington, but by the Dutch and the Belgians and the, and the, and the Germans. It was called the Boulevard de l'Europe, the bulwark of Europe. It would postpone any uh, attack from France. It would alert uh, the Germans to come to the rescue of the Dutch. It would give the British either some time to come over or to evacuate. So it was an... Um, a strategical ploy in any new kind of European war. And I think that that, that part of the, um, uh, the products the, of the Napoleonic campaigns and also the foundations for this new collective security system in Europe are heavily underestimated. Let's look specifically at Napoleon's downfall. Um, and I want to kind of delve a bit further into that, what you were saying about Napoleon as somebody who considered war to be effectively diplomacy by another means. Uh, and that whole debate that there is about to what extent was Napoleon a man of peace? Because the pro-Napoleon camp will often say that the peace overtures in 1813, which were made by the coalition powers, were not genuine, and that this was just an allied ruse to stall for time. Whilst the anti-Napoleon camp will highlight that, in actual fact, the 1813 terms were really quite generous and that it was Napoleon who gambled everything on war instead. So where does your research lead you to feel that the truth lies in that discussion? Yes, that, that's a fascinating question. What exactly happened uh, between 1813 and 1815 in terms of um, the allied ambitions of the end state of the coalition warfare for France? So what was their end state? What was their uh, uh, military war aims, what was their war purpose. And uh, in February 1813, when they first came together in Breslau at the Allied headquarters, and from Breslau it moved steadily onwards towards the Rhine and then to, in, into France. In Breslau 1813, there was no clarity of war purpose yet. The idea was to beat Napoleon and to, to lure him into a series of, of big battlefields and then perhaps even push him out uh, over the Rhine. And this is what happened. And uh, first of all, with the Battle of Leipzig, his defeat, and the goal was to, to force Napoleon back over the border of the Rhine and um, uh, reduce France to what they called France's natural borders and the Pyrenees, the Alps and the Rhine. Bel France would then retain control of Belgium, Savoy and the Rhineland uh, and uh, other 
conquests, including all of Spain, Poland, and the Netherlands, had to be restored, given back. Also, almost all of Italy and Germany east of the Rhine. And this was the old-fashioned classical idea that France would so, yeah, sort of push back into the 18th century situation uh, where we came from. But then, after Leipzig, when Napoleon was offered this goal, it's the so-called very famous or infamous Frankfurt proposals, um, Napoleon delayed too long. And Metternich was the one who offered Napoleon these proposals and also told him that these were the best terms. And uh, there's even a very important quotation where Metternich says, why should we lose more blood on the fields? Why should we burn more generations to the ground? And, and you, you can even feel here Metternich's uh, authentic um, cry for 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 confusion of why confusion why why should you wage so much more war and, and and allow for so much more bloodletting where this kind of peace could be concluded and Napoleon just doesn't see that point of view and he do, just doesn't make that calculation for him it's it's completely irrelevant or indifferent he just raises new generations with the Levea Moss and he does that after 1814 and um he also delays too long. Um, that's after the Battle of Leipzig. He delays too long. He loses the opportunity. And he loses the fact that Metternich was also still a little bit hesitant in binding all of his uh, fate to the Allies, to the Russians and the Prussians. And at that point, Napoleon could have perhaps concluded a kind of an um, half-past peace with Austria. Um, London didn't trust Metternich there at all, but Napoleon lost that momentum and then uh, he was finally forced to abdicate on April 6, 1814. And he could have left it there, but obviously he couldn't. He had to come back. And his second, uh, uh, or his, well, the, the, the way he came back, that really brought the Allies together and that really forged uh, the Seventh Coalition and forged the idea that, that it wasn't enough to stop at the Rhine but go into France and occupy the country and make sure that no new Napoleon, no new, no, no new Bonapartism could emerge ever again. So Napoleon himself um, risked and, and lost everything by just continuing to fight and not understanding these diplomatic overtours the Allied, the Allied made to him, especially Metternich. See, it's moments like this that make me love presenting a podcast like this because I've got five or six different questions that I want to ask all at the same time. Let's let's start with 1815, just because you were talking about that just now. Um, the the unity of purpose amongst the Allies that is demonstrated that it is is a result actually of Napoleon's return is something that, on the surface at least, seems quite surprising given the scale of disunity that began to reign once Napoleon had been dealt with in 1814. Does that kind of U-turn and that, that unity of purpose surprise you? Is it a demonstration of the scale of the threat that Napoleon posed? Or, or is this something that perhaps we might have expected? Well, I, I think Napoleon's return and the Hundred Days uh, period and the way France flocked once again behind uh, the general, it was an, a genuine surprise for the Allied leaders and also uh, perhaps one of the greatest shocks and horrors they experienced throughout this whole prolonged period of warfare. You have to imagine that the, the leaders, not just the generals, but also the politicians, Castlereagh, uh, the Prussians, uh, they were all there, joined together at the military headquarters. So uh, Johannes Palman wrote about this and he said it's horseback diplomacy. Uh, if you study, for example, the, 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 the letters Castlereagh wrote to his wife, also Wellington, complaining about the drizzle and the cold and the misery that he had come through and already were experiencing for two years. And they were there in Europe for two years. Alexander didn't go home. He was there all the time with a brief stint to London in 1814. But they were in Europe between 1813 and 1814. They were stuck together uh, and and they they went through this ordeal together and they were all these 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 um dispatches coming in on the daily base on um soldiers lost friends lost in one of your previous podcasts uh, the, the the duke of wellington is quoted which is completely uh yeah melancholical sad tones on all the friends that he had lost so they didn't want to experience that ever again so it was the great terror 
it's not the terror of the revolution, but this this um, twin terror of the Napoleonic warfare, the Jacobin uh, Bonapartist terror, as Metternich dubbed it. So it's it's sort of forged together the the red threat of the revolution, and then the militarized Jacobinic uh, military uh, uh, threat of the terror. It's it's seen as one. Uh, two phases of the same monster and it had to be put down for good because it was not just killing of the people it also was also upending uh, the trade the economics the continental blockades it was destroying the whole of europe and in many places on the continent not in britain but in the netherlands and in germany central europe demography was on the decline which hadn't happened since the plague so for many of the countries of europe it, they, they 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 craved a restoration to peace and stability and and this brought them together and it's what the populaces wanted if you study the poems if you study uh, the literature it's not just the young germany literature it's also in the netherlands and in belgium everyone wanted uh, the, the, the kings of europe to restore peace again to bring back the societas europeana uh, even the holy roman empire could come back as as long as as the roots and the traits and daily life could resort back to normal again so and this is only really in these last two three years of the warfare before that 17 uh, 1800 1804 1807 it was not felt that 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 badly but in 1813 1814 1815 europe was exhausted and one of the things that you mentioned was about separate pieces and the scope that napoleon had to perhaps play a, a slightly more cunning perhaps even more machiavellian game in securing individual pieces with specific nations and kind of breaking the coalition apart by taking out little chunks at a time do you think that that could have actually worked as a strategy um that's a good question i i don't think so because we we saw it before in 1807 napoleon had a separate piece uh, with prussia and with russia and uh, well not just a separate piece a piece with all of europe and he didn't he didn't live up to the conditions of his own treaty and he completely brought prussia and prussia uh, up against him in giving them such a harsh treatment so it was not sustainable not, these were not livable conditions and any conqueror knows that if you push your enemy too hard he, he will retaliate and so napoleon didn't take his own peace treaties very seriously so why would he do so in 1812 13 or 14 if he didn't already did it in 1804 and 1807 so as i said he was a, a soldier diplomat only preparing for the next battle because that is what he was good at. He was not good in uh, conducting endless uh, peace treaties, sitting at banquets and listening to other monarchs. It was him who had to do the monologues. At what point do you feel that he went too far? Because there are moments where I kind of wonder if he had the scope to kind of stabilize his empire in such a way that he could have endured had he been inclined to. Do you feel there's a specific moment where Napoleon overstepped the mark where had he taken a step back from the brink he might have been able to endure as he later claimed that he wished to or do you think that this was always kind of an inevitability of Napoleon's nature? Yeah I think the latter. I think for Napoleon the last moment that on theory, in theory on paper he could have accepted a reasonable peace was in 1813 after the Battle of Leipzig with the Frankfurt pro proposals. He could have at least try them give them a chance and uh at that point the allies were not so unified yet as they were in 1814 or 1815 so they had beaten napoleon uh, in leipzig but there was still a debate going on whether they had to pursue napoleon over the rhine or not and there was also a debate going on uh, whether napoleon uh, could be dealt with and could be left on the throne and that was a kind of a window of opportunity that he lost in waiting too long and he waited too long because he didn't want to it was not in his nature so i think that's perhaps the last moment where in theory something could have been worked out but napoleon wouldn't allow metternich to make that proposal or the case for him uh, within the allied headquarters so he, he waited too long do you think there's something specific about how napoleon dealt with people on a personal level are there any kind of hallmarks of Napoleon's way when he's dealing with diplomats on a one-to-one -one basis? 
Ah, that's a very interesting one. Um, well, the, the interesting fact with Napoleon is, and I know that has been it has been debated in your podcast before, he was not a dictator who believed in uh, completely single-handedly inventing everything uh, for everyone. So he listened to advisors and he used their advice. And uh, for example, in France, he had constructed this Conseil d'État, the state council, and he ordained, he didn't invite, he ordained people from the Netherlands, from Germany, other uh, parts of uh, to to come over to the Conseil d'État. Some Dutch people were even ordained to sit on the Conseil d'État and to help the French draft, for example, the Code Napoleon or other legislation for the, the, the places that uh, were set, considered satellites or uh, satellites or that he uh, occupied. And he listened to the advice, he listened to the ways they described cultural, uh, historical traditions in those places, and they were somewhat ingrained and inserted in the, in, in the French uh, designs for the, their occupying territories. Yet, however, it was always his uh, overarching um, ambition that 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 remained at the end of the day. So uh, when the Dutch did not bring in enough money, for example, he just overruled these advices that he had earlier on uh, accepted. So for him, it was the military campaigns that came first and he needed the money, he needed the conscripts, he needed uh, the leverage. And if he didn't get that, he was willing to abandon everything. Also in that respect, he was unpredictable. So he dealt with people as he saw them fit for his immediate tactical purposes, but he could discard them as soon as he didn't didn't any longer uh, consider them use, useful. What kind of legacy did Napoleon leave then, both in terms of how international relations and negotiations are conducted? And you've talked specifically about how the, the Congress of Vienna represented a, a kind of a departure from the old ways of doing things but also in in terms of kind of napoleon's legacy for state security yes well there's the international and the domestic um, uh, legacy on the domestic front what napoleon uh, did and is famous uh, for uh, most notably via his uh, minister uh, joseph fouché was he created um, a, mili a military but he also created a domestic uh, security service uh, the haute police, the high police, which was already in itself a legacy of the French Revolution, obviously, but it, it was kind of a centralization of the way the state projected its power over its citizens and also tried to control the hearts and minds of the citizens. It was still nascent, it was still um, young and, and abbreviated in many instances, but the way Fouché dispatched his spies into the cafe houses uh, of Paris and other cities, the way correspondences were, were uh, studied, not just for military purposes, but also for governance purposes. To what extent uh, was Napoleon? He was very wary of the uh, esprit public. He knew that public opinion could topple a king public opinion could launch a revolution. He knew that. So he installed this secret police. He also made use of passports, a kind of, um, um, uh, how, do you, how do you do you phrase this? Laissez-passer, uh, these were documents, declarations, which someone could travel and which his, um, uh, his outlook was described briefly on the paperwork. So, but it was an early form of passports. And he also compiled blacklists of people who, who ran against him, who were oppositions, uh, who had to go in exile, for example, Madame de Stael. Uh, and he controlled that as well. And that legacy uh, was also taken over by the Concert of Europe afterwards. So at the Congress of Vienna, people paid close attention to what, what was happening in, in France. And most prominently, the Depressions did. The Depressions had their own reforms, reforms also very much uh, echoes of what Napoleon had been doing. And uh, when Wellington was commander of the Allied army in Paris, he established a headquarter, a military headquarter in Cambrai, but also a political headquarter in Paris at the British Embassy. And he also appointed Justus von Gruner. Justus von Gruner had been the director of the Berlin police, also a Prussian reformer, friend of uh, uh, Chancellor Hardenberg. And then Justus von Gruner came to Paris and established not just for Wellington, but for the Allied Council as such, this ministerial committee compiled of Metternich, Wellington, uh, Tsar Alexander, and later on their ministers, um, and Austria, of course, uh, and Britain, Prussia, Russia, and Austria, those four countries together, they established this allied country uh, commission, and uh, they appointed Justus von Gruner as their head of intelligence. And he started to compile domestic civilian intelligence 
only as free public as it was voiced against or in favor of the Allied. So they knew that it was important for military coalition also to have intelligence in peacetime. And they also started or they continued the use of passports. There were European passports. It was even a kind of a European arrest warrant, a kind of a joint Allied uh, Council arrest warrant uh, issued. And there were also very importantly Allied blacklists. Blacklists of people, either revolutionaries, um, terrorists, uh, the, the, the genocidal terrorists, um, or um, uh, Bonapartists who were put on that list and were not allowed to live in France anymore or in the Netherlands or in Italy or in Germany to close uh, with France. For example, Hortense de Beauharnais, the former queen of the Netherlands and uh, the estranged wife of Louis Napoleon, she was not allowed to settle in any of those countries near France because they knew that she and her son, the later Napoleon III, were conspiring against uh, the Bourbons. So there was a, a very solid idea of domestic political intelligence building up in Europe, partly as a legacy of what Napoleon had been doing. So they overtook some of his innovations. One final question from me. As a statesman, where do you feel Napoleon sits amongst history's leaders? Oh, I, I think every period, every every statesman has his unique qualities and uh, some of them can be grouped together. It's, it's, it's hard to find any other statesman that you can put Napoleon into a group with. So he's sort of, uh, he's, he's, he's a standalone one. So I'm not in favor of comparing him to later dictators. Uh, some people compare him to Hitler. Well, I'm not going to do that because that's completely ahistorical. But in history, in that period, he stands out as someone who uniquely imposed his will on Europe, was also destroyed by his own ambitions and brought about his revolution in the international system. So without Napoleon, I, I doubt whether the French Revolution would have made such an impact. Beatrice, this has been an absolute treat. I loved having you on in June. This has been just as good. Remind people how they can keep in touch about your developments because you are on Twitter, aren't you? I'm on Twitter and uh, well, my book came out during lockdown. So that left me without any real book presentations or launches. So if people are uh, interested, please send me a note or, or contact me via Twitter uh, on my new book because I would love to to hear more about what people think of this this theory the fighting terror after Napoleon book which came out uh, in October at Cambridge University Press. Brilliant Beatrice thanks very much for joining me. Thank you Zach. That was Professor Beatrice de Graaf from the University of Utrecht joining me to discuss Napoleon's way of waging peace. You can follow Beatrice on Twitter at Beatrice de Graaf and her book Fighting Terror After Napoleon how Europe Became Secure After 1815 is available to order from Cambridge University Press online now. You know the drill. Please do take the time to like, share, retweet and leave a review on your favourite podcast platform. And you can join the conversation at thenapoleonicwars.net. You can also find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory, where you can take part in the final vote for Napoleon's Greatest Battle. I'll be back next week with a double bill with Josh Proven, on Napoleon's marshals in Spain. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Napoleon's Way of Waging Peace, part of Napoleon Month, here on The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>